Thank you for that prayer, Julie. It's also the first time my lecture topic during an introduction has ever been heckled, so um, <laughs> thanks for that. Some guy told me to take off my tie, not doing it, don't feel like it. I would have, it's as hot as can be up here, um, but he told me that I looked like I was carrying a parachute on my back. I don't know who it was, and he also told me that I need to take off my tie, and my passive-aggressive instinct just kicked in. And I'm not doing anything y'all tell me to do. I don't care. <laughs> That's not the metaphor that Jim Edwards used to describe what it's like to be here, the one Troy mentioned about being in a science experiment. He told me it's like being with a bunch of junior high school students um, who can be raucous, but also can be very sweet and will listen well. So I'm expecting, <laughs> I'm expecting both. So thank you for having me. Uh, thanks also um, for having both of us. Haley came to us, uh, to Whitworth, three years ago, and she has been killing it ever since. I mean, the impact that she's made at our university in the very short span of time has been remarkable. The students love her, her colleagues love her, and I could not be more excited to hear her lectures. So thanks again um, from Whitworth for having us and from Haley and me. So uh, my topic is the reconciliation of the world to God in Christ, and I'm going to think about that topic all week with you, and I'm not going to uh, apologize for learning more about this topic than anyone else uh, has taught me from Karl Barth. So Karl Barth is, um, has been a mentor for me, um, not in and of himself, but as a way of pointing me towards the text of Scripture and especially to the person of Jesus Christ. Um, so I'm going to, we are going to think about reconciliation together um, with the help of Karl Barth this week. So I've been reading Karl Barth more or less nonstop since 1997. And during that time, I've noticed something weird about the way that academic theologians talk about Karl Barth. Whatever we think about him, we usually operate as if his life and work and witness are mostly for us, which I suppose makes a kind of sense because Karl Barth is one of the church's best theologians. He ranks alongside Augustine and Thomas and Luther as one of the most brilliant theological minds the church has ever had. So it makes sense, I guess, that academic people claim him. But Karl Barth himself thought that his work was as much for pastors as it was for other theologians. Here's how he put it in the preface to his volume on the ethics of creation. Quote, For three decades, I have not personally taken any direct share in pastoral work, but what I have done in the meantime has all always been intended for its benefit, for the benefit of people doing pastoral work. It's obviously the case that Karl Barth wanted his theology to be discussed in academic journals and books. He knew um, that he was a theologian of world historical importance, but he also, and especially, wanted his ideas 
to make their way into sermons, into the thinking of pastors, and also into the theological imagination of lay people as they're trying to bear witness uh, to Jesus Christ. So I think that um, Karl Barth is a valuable resource for us. Now, it's a different question whether we have the capacity to listen to Karl Barth. I've been thinking quite a lot about this lately. Um, the technology, I don't want to bore you with this. This is something that all of you have already uh, know, and I won't say more than a sentence about it, but I do think that the technologies that are dominating our lives could not be more perfectly designed to turn us into the kind of people that lack the attention to read the church dogmatics. Um, I can't imagine anything worse for sustained, disciplined, attentive, patient reading than Twitter or Instagram or Donald Trump or whatever. Um, but if you do somehow manage to make the church dogmatics part of the daily rhythm of your life, Karl Barth, I think, can teach you how to think about God and the world from a starting point in the person of Jesus Christ. In other words, he can help you, as Paul put it in 2 Corinthians 10, to, quote, take every thought captive and make it obedient to Jesus Christ. The theology of Karl Barth is valuable only to the extent that it helps you do that. Where it deflects from that goal, where it leads you away from that goal, then it ought to be rejected. But Karl Barth himself was trying as hard as he could to help us learn to think about God in a way that's disciplined by Jesus Christ. And that's his great contribution to the church's thinking, I think. So enough of that. Uh, I think Bard is a great resource, and I won't continue on about that any longer. Um, let me be even more specific, though. I think his doctrine of reconciliation in particular has the power to reshape the way that we think and live uh, our lives as pastors. And I'm going, I'm not, this is not a rhetorical convention. I teach at a university, but I think of myself as a pastor. Our, the shape of our lives are different, but I think the goal of our lives, is, they overlap very significantly. We're trying to train people to receive the love of God and respond to it in gratitude. I, I, I hope that's what you're doing as pastors, and that's certainly what I'm trying to do, too. So, um, Karl Barth's doctrine of reconciliation, I think, has the power to change and shape and make what we do look different. And not only some of the things that we do, I actually think that if we internalize his doctrine of reconciliation, he has the power, it has the power, to make everything that we do look different. And I'm not speaking in hyperbole about that. Here's what I mean. The church is a community that's called to a way of life that conforms to the pattern of Jesus Christ's own life. Uh, I, don't, I, I suppose that's probably not controversial. The shape and pattern of our lives and what our communities look like ought to be governed at every point, at every single point, by the person and work of Jesus Christ. But that begs one very obvious question which is, what has Jesus done for us? 
What is it exactly that Jesus has accomplished for us and for our salvation? So Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5 that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. This magisterial claim. And what Karl Barth helps us do and what I want us to think about during these uh, lectures that we're going to, that Hale and I are going to do, mine in particular, is think about what it could possibly mean that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. So, um, here's just to give you a map, and this will be the end of the intro, uh, a map of what I'm going to do. I'm going to talk tonight about his basic view of reconciliation. Tomorrow, I'm going to talk about what his doctrine of reconciliation implies for what it means to be human, truly human. Um, After that, we are going to explore what it means to think about sanctification in light of this way of thinking about reconciliation. And in the last two talks, I'm going to talk about theological training, um, which is hopefully not something that's only taking place in schools, but is also taking place in congregations. Um, We're going to talk about that. And then finally, I'm going to talk about pastoral ethos. In other words, the kinds of human beings that we have to become in order to make our message about Jesus Christ and his love for the world more rather than less plausible. So five talks, uh, humanity, sanctification, theological vision, I'm calling it, and pastoral ethos. So not tonight. Uh, Troy gave me uh, the advice that I should not field questions during this lecture because I think it's a little bit briefer than some of the others. But it's way more fun for us to do this together rather than for me to stand up here and talk the whole time. So if you have any questions along the way, I'm going to pause and I want you to feel free to ask them. If anything is not clear, um, I don't care. If you disagree, that's fine with me too. Uh, It'll be spicier that way. So whatever you want, back and forth, hopefully we can have fun doing this. All right. Uh, Recall again the question that I just raised a second ago. What does it mean to say that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself? All of you know that passage. I want you to think about what it actually means to make that claim. Karl Barth begins his answer to that question by raising another question that is as simple as it is profound. The question that he asks us is this. Is reconciliation a reality or is it a possibility? Is reconciliation a reality or a possibility? When Jesus Christ lived, suffered, died, and was raised from the dead for us, did he really reconcile us to God? Did he really establish peace? between God and humanity? Is that an objective fact that includes everyone? Or, and here's the alternative, or did Jesus only make it possible for people to be reconciled to God? Did he merely open a way to reconciliation A reconciliation that only becomes real when people respond to it in the right way. So that's the question. I hope it's clear. 
Let me restate it because it's super important. Does the reality of reconciliation call forth faith, call forth our response? Or does faith and our response make reconciliation a reality? I'm going off script. Let me pause here. I want to field questions. Is that clear to you? These two options. Yeah? Anybody in the room it's unclear? All right. I want to read a few passages that I think can help us think through this. But before I do, I want to be upfront with you about something. You should be very suspicious of Karl Barth's way of interpreting these passages. Because almost no one in the history of the church understands them like Karl Barth understands them. So as astonishing as it may seem once you hear them, it is a simple fact that no major tradition within the church understands Christ's reconciliation in a way that Barth thinks is faithful to these texts that I'm about to read. Because unlike Bart, the church has been virtually unanimous in saying that Jesus merely opens up the possibility of reconciliation. Sure, the various traditions disagree about the details of how that possibility is realized. If you were to ask a Roman Catholic and an Orthodox to describe the movement from possibility to reality they would give you a very different explanation from a non-denominational evangelical or a progressive Protestant. But for all their differences, the answers they would give you are variations on a basic theme. Christ's death and resurrection make reconciliation possible. But for reconciliation to become real something else has to be added to it. Now, the lone exception to this narrative that I've given you are the Reformed theologians who affirm limited atonement, but since they restrict the scope of Christ's reconciling work to the elect and the elect only, Bart is not on their team either. Which means that he is basically a minority of one. Nobody really thinks about reconciliation in the way that he does, aside from the people that he has influenced, and even they don't usually follow him all the way. So all of this just is to say that um, Karl Barth's position really only has one thing going for it, and it's that is true. But I want you to pause for a second and consider what that means. If somehow Bart turns out to be right about this topic, then he is an invaluable resource for us. Because if he's right, then he gives the church an opportunity to hear the gospel in a fresh way, in a way that is at once similar to, to the way that we're used to hearing the gospel narrated, but also, in important ways, different. So as I read these passages, 
I want you to decide for yourself how you think Christ's work of reconciliation is being described. Okay, so this is, this is a kind of um, tag team effort. I'm going to read. I want you to listen really carefully. And I just want you to listen with this particular question in mind. Do these passages move from reality of reconciliation to the possibility of faith or the possibility of reconciliation to faith? Do you get it? To the reality of reconciliation. Here's how it goes. Colossians 1, 15 to 23. And we're not used, I mean, young children are much better, I think, uh, than adults at listening to long passages of Scripture read to them. So as I read, do not allow me to sound like the professor from Peanuts, where, it, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Try, try to um, listen like children and receive these words uh, as if they're new and fresh to you, these passages that we've read over and over. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him, all things. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. And then, here we go. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven. How? By making peace through his blood, which he shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death, to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. And then this is an important conditional. Pay attention to this. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. The next passage is from the fifth chapter of Romans, verses 6 to 11. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, although for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if, 
while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. How much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his faith, through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. 2 Corinthians 5, uh, verses 14 to 21. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. One died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all so that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view, although we once regarded Christ in that way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, a new creation, the old has gone, the new is here. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ, who reconciled us to himself through Christ, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. And now notice the second way of using the language of reconciliation. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And then um, 1 John 2.2, particularly pertaining to the scope of this reconciliation, as if it wasn't clear enough from the Colossians passage and the others, Jesus Christ, quote, is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now, there are all sorts of things uh, that we could talk about after reading these passages, uh, important interpretive questions we could raise, etc. But I want to point out just three crucial things that I take to be clearly articulated in these passages. The first is that reconciliation is a reality. I, I hope that as you are listening um, that, lang- that thought, uh, you heard that thought expressed in these passages. Reconciliation is a reality. The second point is that reconciliation is universal. Uh, it's a fact that includes everyone. In-, in the Colossians passage, it's not just all people, it's the whole of the cosmos. And then third, and this is also important, Your subjective response to this objective fact 
is very, very important. I'll say those again. Reconciliation is a reality. Reconciliation is universal. And your response to this fact is very important. Now, the way I understand the history of the church's reflection on this issue, it has always emphasized the second two points. So it knows that Christ was crucified for everyone and that our response matters. I'm sure all of you think that. But the church has not embraced the first point, that reconciliation is, first of all, a perfect reality. And because of that, Bart thinks, the church cannot help but misconstrue the second two points. Because think about it, unless you see that reconciliation is a fact that Jesus accomplishes on his own, a truth that does not require a supplemental work from us to become real, then you can say the words, but you don't really understand what it means to say that Jesus Christ died for everyone. And you'll go on to make the further mistake of thinking that it's your faith rather than Jesus Christ himself that ultimately reconciles you to God. But Bart says, look, that is just not how these passages work. God's reconciling love for us in Christ does not depend on our response to it. It is not our faith that puts the relationship right. Jesus does that. If there is a question in your mind about who saves you, either you or Jesus, you need to rethink <laughs> your way of understanding the gospel. Carl Barth is, is saying. Faith is very, very important. But it's important because it is how we embrace who we already are in Jesus Christ. Faith and obedience are how our existence, the shape of our individual lives, match up with our essence, which is a reality in Jesus Christ. Faith does not make reconciliation real. Faith is how we say yes and how we embrace what is already real in Jesus. And if there are any of you who are sitting there thinking, I'm sorry, but this is just splitting hairs, Please give me the benefit of the doubt here. This is not splitting hairs. This is a massive theological difference. It's, there's a fine line between the two. I, I get that it's slightly technical, but it's hugely important for the way that we think about the gospel and the way that we think about our ministries. Um, maybe it's like this. My daughter Mary, when she was a little kid, got into some naughty business and so my wife Janet and I sat her down and we said to her, look, Mary, you really don't want to get into that. It's going to hurt you. And plus, you know what? That's not who you really are. That's not the Mary we know. And this kid is five years old, five or six, something like that. And she looks at me straight in the eye like only little kids can do. And she says, how do you know that's not who I am? And at that point, I said, God, 
thank you for Karl Barth. <laughs> because it's only because I've read Karl Barth that I can look Mary in the eye and say, I know who you are because I know who Jesus is. I don't have to examine Mary's life to know who she really is. I have to know who Jesus is to know who Mary really is. And Karl Barth taught me to think like that. If what Barth thinks Paul is saying is true, I want you to think for a moment uh, about what that means for us. If it's correct that all of us die in the death of Jesus Christ, and I want you to pause and think, I mean, l- let me just say this sentence again. It sounds bible and just about right. But pause and consider how bizarre it is. One died for all, and therefore all died. There's a word in that sentence that makes no sense. What is it? Therefore. If I finish this talk and go back to the dorm and the construction dust asphyxiates me and I die, well, I mean, y'all have to get a new speaker or Haley can like double up. (laughs) But none of you dies. Listen to Paul's claim. One died for all and therefore all died in the death of Jesus Christ. If that's actually correct and if it's correct that everyone was raised to new life in Jesus Christ's resurrection and given a share in this new humanity that he establishes, then the deepest question of human life has already been answered in Jesus. Jesus Christ is the true human being. And it's in him that we discover who we are. It's in him that we find our truest selves And once that starts to sink in, the more you internalize that, the more you realize that coming to Jesus is just like coming home. The more we learn to apprentice ourselves to him, the more we learn who we actually are. Or, to look at it from the other angle, the more that we enter into contradiction with Jesus the more we enter into contradiction with ourselves. There are all sorts of ways of talking about sin. Uh, I think sin, um, one way to talk about it, if you're thinking along these lines, sin is just embracing a form of life that has no future. To sin is to live in a pattern of life that has already been put to death in Jesus Christ's death. Which means that in addition to everything else, sin is just stupid. And I really wish the church would talk about this more than it does. Sin does not add up. It's like going to the track and betting your whole life savings on a dead horse. Not on a slow horse or a fat horse, on a horse that is dead. That's what it's like to embrace sin. Sin is God rescuing Israel from Egypt and Israel longing, longing to return to the flesh pots from which it came. Returning to slavery. That's what it is to sin. 
Sin is God giving us new life in Jesus Christ, but rather than receiving our lives from him and in him, it's laboring under the impossible burden of trying to invent our own lives, of trying to figure out on our own and by ourselves what it means to live a good and meaningful human life. And I'm going to end there. Uh, We'll pick up that theme where we left off tonight, tomorrow, when I talk about human existence. Thanks again for having Haley and me here. We're super excited to be with you. Thank you. Um, Is my time over? Do we have a a few minutes for questions? Okay, sweet. Do y'all want to ask some questions? Fun. Yeah. Hey, Adam. Um, I'm I'm just curious, in this whole conversation, um, how helpful is it um, and how good is it to make no references whatsoever to hell. I was just thinking about the Pope's proclamation last week. And how helpful is it in all of this if we remove hell from the discussion entirely? Yeah, great question. Um, This is a question that, of course, immediately comes up um, when we think about atonement, when we think about the work of Jesus Christ for us and for our salvation. Um, There's so much that we can talk about um, along these lines. If I had a black, like a whiteboard or something, I would like map some stuff out. Let me just put it like this. The question that we have to ask ourselves is, how does Scripture talk about the nature of reconciliation on the one hand and the scope of reconciliation on the other hand? And thirdly, how does it talk about hell? Right? So the nature of reconciliation, is it a reality or possibility? The scope of reconciliation, um, is it universal or is it limited? Hell, does it exist or not? Those Those are the issues that we have to think through. So there are two very, very clear and serious, I think, systems for answering and thinking about the first two questions. Arminianism on the one hand makes perfect sense. Reconciliation is a possibility. It is a possibility extended to everyone. Who are the people that end up in hell? Let me just ask you. The people who just don't make use of that possibility that was extended to them, right? So a perfectly coherent system. Um, Limited atonement. Another very serious, in in my view, system, which says reality of reconciliation. There, I think they're actually correct. Scope, limited. There, there, I don't think they're correct. And neither does any other part of the church that's not in their group. Hell, yes. Now who, yeah. That, that's the thing. Sometimes you get the sense that these Calvinists are a little too excited about hell. But anyways, that system makes perfect sense because who ends up in hell? Those people for whom Jesus Christ did not die, namely those who weren't elected, right? So it's perfectly coherent. Both of these systems are coherent. How does Bart do it? Well, Bart... And the way I think about it, Bart refuses to systematize claims that are made in Scripture about these issues and tries as best he can to affirm all of them. So he says, reconciliation of the world to God is a reality. The scope is universal. It's for everyone. Hell, 
And here he says, I don't say yes and I don't say no. So he's willing to affirm, perhaps, the possibility that we will, for eternity, deny that which is true about us. He says, I don't teach it, but I don't not teach it. Now, as a systematic theologian, I like to defend my discipline a little bit because we often encounter the claim that you guys are always trying to tie everything up. And you try to systematize claims that are made in Scripture when Scripture doesn't allow us to do that. And I'm precisely not doing that. I'm saying I think that the Scriptures teach the reality of reconciliation, that that's uh, true for everyone, and that hell is a very real threat. Is that a coherent way of thinking? Not nearly as coherent as the other two, but I think it's biblical, more biblical. Hell is a very real threat. Let me put it this way. Bart thinks, and here he poses a counter question to that question. It's a challenge. He thinks that it is an absurdity that anyone ends up in hell suffering eternally a consequence that Jesus Christ has taken on in, in their place and for their sake. So at the very least, you would have to say that it's weird if anyone ends up in hell on Bart's territory because they would end up in hell experiencing a future that has been put to death in the death and resurrection of Jesus. Yeah. Let me, okay, he doesn't affirm that. But here's what he also says. And, and this, I think, is, um, this is speculative. Uh, this is not something you would want to, like, teach as sort of a requirement in your, uh, I don't know, catechism classes or whatever. But Karl Barth raises the question as to whether or not death, um, this is the formulation of one of my teachers at Princeton, constitutes a statute of limitations on the grace of God. And when we read in Philippians that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord, maybe it's possible that when our eyes are opened that there will be a different future for people than hell, maybe. Bart, again, um, doesn't make that claim definitively or dogmatically. He just leaves it open as a possibility. Yeah. Okay, um, yeah. I'm Scott Peterson. I want to ask a question about this word reconciliation. Yeah. And from our human experience, it always takes two willing parties to be reconciled. Yeah. And otherwise it doesn't happen. Yeah. And so Bart is saying... It only takes one willing party to be reconciled. At least that's the way I understand what you're saying. Clearly, that one is very different. So, can you kind of delve into great question. how how yeah how that works? Yeah, yeah. Um, there, I wrote a book about it, so you should just buy it and read it. Um, there, if if I had more time to sort of fill this out larger, I would use different language to describe. When he talks about reconciliation of the world um, to himself, when scripture talks about God's reconciliation of the world uh, to himself in Christ, it gives us both an objective component to that relationship. There is 
peace that has been established between God and us in the person of Jesus Christ. That's a real relationship. That is the atmosphere or the context in which all of us exist. There is, however, also a subjective component to reconciliation. Namely, and this is what I said this third point, our response, or Paul's way of saying, you've been reconciled to God. That's an objective fact. Therefore, be reconciled to God. In other words, that's a subjective reception. So in order for there to be a two-way relationship in this subjective part, the original reconciliation has to be one way. It has to be God alone who saves us. God doesn't ask our permission if he wants us to, to be saved. Like, if he were to ask you, when you're going headlong into hell, would you like me to save you? All of us would just say no. So he has to just do it unilaterally, apart from us. And then he extends this invitation. Now just be who you are. That's the sum, and that's what we're going to talk about tomorrow. That's the sum total of Bart's ethics. This is who you are. Now be who you are. That second part is a partnership. It's a relationship that's two-sided. It's not just unilateral. But for that kind of relationship to be a possibility, he first has to do it on his own unilaterally. God is, yes. Um, I think there are a number of reasons why that's the case. Um, one of them just is, yeah, that God is holy and humanity has fallen away from him. The other is that Jesus Christ can do it because he is himself God. No human being, and this is part of the reason that it's so important to have a high Christology. The way that the New Testament describes what Jesus Christ has done for us is uh, a description that only makes sense if God is the agent of that action. So, yeah. You've talked about uh, hell. You might as well get on the other tough one, evil. Uh, the reality of evil in a world that does not seem to be reconciled or desiring to be reconciled. Only a sucker and a fool would try to explain away evil. So, if you... I'm not falling for it, buddy. <laughs> I'm aware of your traps, people. <laughs> Haley and I were talking about this on the way. I'm, gonna, I'm tired. I was sleepless. I was in New York City for a week um, in a room with someone who was snoring for five straight days, and I'm essentially... You know, I have been awake for the last hundred plus hours. Had I not been this way, I probably wouldn't say this. Honestly, I have no idea what to say about evil. Uh, this is a, a why, why do little children suffer um, at the hands of their parents if there's a good God? Um, I, I don't think any of us has an answer to that question. Um, the only thing that we can, and we certainly don't want to enter into explanations about how God is going to, uh, I think, I don't want to steal Haley's thunder. She's going to talk about this. Um, explanations that would, in the final analysis, turn evil into something like a disguised good. I don't want to do that. So there's tons of stuff that I don't want to do. Um, the, the best way that I know how to talk about this is uh, to quote a seminary teacher that I had who was herself a Jew 
and ended up converting to Christianity um, by reading Karl Barth, of all people. She said that it made a profound impact on her when she learned that in the New Testament, Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, but he was raised from the dead with scars. I mean, the scars didn't go away. There is such a fine line between the idea that there is a silver lining in evil events, and God then turns that little sliver of good into all good. That is a recipe for abusing victims. There is a much better way to think about it, a way that can only be explained by pointing to the category of miracle. Evil is altogether evil and cannot be redeemed. And then God, in the mystery of his love, is capable of redeeming it. The only analogy that we have for that fact is the creation of the world out of nothing. Not the creation of the world out of pre-existing materials, if you're following the analogy. Because if you think about it that way, that then always causes you to look for that sliver of goodness in the really terrible thing that just happened to this person. And as you know, because you're pastors, that's really bad practice. So the only thing that Christians have to say in response to the question of evil is just a name, Jesus. But beyond that, I think we should just be silent. We out of time? Or we have more time? We done? Okay, thanks. Great questions. See you tomorrow.